This morning's scripture reading comes from Matthew chapter 13, verses 44 through 46. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who, on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. This is the word of the Lord. For the past uh, month, we've been looking at uh, the series, The Hard Sayings of Jesus. And what we mean by that is it's not hard as in just that it's difficult to hear some of these words, but by hard, what we mean is like hard candy. You got to you got to put it in your mouth and you got to let it dissolve a little bit before you can swallow it. Because if you try to swallow it whole, you'll choke on it. And so uh, a lot of these sayings, you know, a lot of us who've grown up in the church, we hear some of these phrases and we kind of gloss over them because we're like, we don't really know what they mean. And you can go an entire lifetime without really um, enjoying the richness of what Christ has to say about his kingdom and about salvation. So um, this is probably one of the shorter passages, probably one of the shortest that we've looked into, but the sermon, unfortunately, for some of us, will not be a short. Uh, it's the same, the same length. Um, there's a lot to say about these verses. Um, there are two parables in this, in this passage here. And what are they about? They're about searching, spiritual searching. Because we live in a time today where it's become acceptable for us to say that we're spiritually searching, that we're Uh, that we're looking for spiritual truth. And here, Jesus shows us two case studies of people who've actually found it. Found what? They found spiritual reality. They found spiritual truth. They've discovered the kingdom, the kingdom of God. And so we need to look at the principles of how we can find spiritual reality or truth so that Religion and faith, it's not just boiled down and reduced to a set of rules or just growing up with some sort of tradition or because we just grew up this way with our parents. And uh, these stories, they're just, like I said, two short parables teaching us two basic principles, only two points. Uh, Two basic principles about finding spiritual reality or truth. The first, um, with respect to the treasure, the kingdom of God, it's always hidden. It's always hidden from us. And a second point is, once it's found, it's always going to change you. It's always hidden from you, the kingdom of God. And secondly, but once you find it, it's always going to change you. It's always going to shape you. First, spiritual treasure, or the kingdom of God, is always hidden from our eyes. It's always hidden from us. Um, uh, so w- when you find it, it's, it's always going to surprise you. It's always going to catch you off guard. If you notice in both stories, um, the first parable, here's a person who's come across this treasure that was hidden in a field. And he's totally surprised by it, right? And in the second situation, you have this merchant. He's looking for a great pearl deal. He's a pearl merchant. And he comes across this pearl of great price, one that's of immeasurable value. And he's totally surprised by it. You know, and uh, so spiritual treasure, it's, it's never where you think it is. And because it's never where you think it is, it's always going to catch you off guard once you, once you discover it. It's always going to surprise you. Look at the first parable. You have this man. He finds this treasure that's hidden in a field. And, you know, for us in our day today, in the 21st century, we look at them, we say, hey, that's so unlikely. Who, who does that? Who finds treasure in a field? But actually, in those days, it was not quite unlikely. Why? Because in those ancient times back then, there were no banks. There were no banks. There were no banks. 
Uh, so how did you store things that were valuable to you? Because, you know, that area in Palestine, that area in Palestine uh, to this day, people were always fighting over the land. And so it was very, very uncertain, very, very um, uh, insecure in that land. And so because there were no banks, what you did was when there were marauders or looters or raiders that would come in and try to steal your land or take land away from you, um, what did you do? You, you went to battle. But before you went to battle, you would dig a hole in your own field uh, and you would hide treasure there. You would hide your wealth there. And then you would go off to battle. And, uh, the, you know, the, it wasn't uncommon uh, to die in the course of battle. And so it wasn't uncommon that this, a particular plot of land would have treasure hidden inside. And people, it wasn't uncommon then to discover some of that treasure, to find that buried treasure, most likely because the person who hid it had passed away. So, and, and Jewish law had a way of dealing with that. Jewish laws, very, very simple. It was, if you find it, you get to keep it. Very simple law, right? Um, but they were under, that land was under Roman occupation at the time. And it was a little bit more ambiguous, Roman law. And so um, Roman law required, you know, people, if you really want to fi- own something, you have to purchase the land around it. You don't just purchase the house. You have to buy the entire field, buy the land. So here's this person, this common man, who comes across this treasure. And it says he covers it up. He, it's probably sticking out of the ground. And he, he covers it up. And what does he do? He goes off and he, he sells everything that he's got. He pulls all the money under his mattress, cashes it in, buys this field. Sells everything he's got to buy this field. Everyone's saying, everybody around this guy is saying, do you know that old man? He took every last penny that he's got from his savings to buy that old lot, that rocky, poor, unkept, unfertile patch of soil. And they laugh at this man. They may mock this man. They may scoff at this man. But who's got the last laugh? This man knows that what he has in his possession is of immeasurable value, immeasurable worth. And the thing is, he just happened upon it. He just came across it. There was nothing he did on his own strength or will or power uh, that, would, that afforded or uh, made him deserve that plot of land or that treasure. He just happened to come across it. And the lesson is this. The Bible tells you over and over, Jesus always hides spiritual treasure, you know, uh, in a cloak of ordinariness. He always hides spiritual treasure, spiritual worth, things of immeasurable value uh, in ordinary things. The world always looks at the surface of things. The world is always completely wedded on the basis of our externals, the superficial aspects of our lives. Philadelphia is absolutely no different, the fifth largest country, a city in the country, and as a result, completely uh, a picture of what the world is like. And you have Philadelphians uh, based on externals, wedded, to, wedded on the basis of externals. Every day, think about it, every day your worth is based on what? What do you measure somebody else's worth on? You look at their looks, you look at how they dress. You look at how polished they are. You look at how articulate they are. You look at how confident they are. You look at how intelligent they are. You judge people based on how much wealth they've got, how connected they are, what type of children they're raising up. Jesus is saying, if you want spiritual treasure, you have to get over those things. 
You have to, you have to completely get over those things because how is the kingdom of God? How is it hidden? Um, I'm just going to mention three practical ways because we've got to take this thing that's out there and kind of bring it down in, in an area where we can kind of uh, resonate, where it resonates with us and it's practical for us. Three practical ways that the kingdom of God is hidden in a field, uh, in ordinariness. First, Jesus hides spiritual treasure in ordinary people. Ordinary people. The fact is, God has a tendency to work with people and through people and in people to completely shatter our world's standards of what is valuable. Um, people, he usually works through people who are considered the losers throughout biblical history. In, in the book of Genesis alone, he uses Sarah, who is barren, to help bring about and continue on the story of redemption. He uses Leah, not, not uh, Rachel, the pretty wife. He uses Leah, the ugly wife. He uses Jacob, the younger son, who is the deceiver, not the firstborn son who is supposed to inherit everything. He uses David, you know, later on in Samuel, in the Samuel books, right? He uses David to become king, not Saul, who is, who is a foot taller than everybody else, a head taller than everybody else. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul writes that God has a tendency, because of the world's superficial ways of judging external value, God works with people who are on the surface considered foolish, unwise, not anything special. That's what he says. And why is that? It's because we are so obsessed with people um, uh, who just on the surface, our externals. We're so obsessed with the externals. Think about it. Is it logical that simply because those people over there are losers, that everything they believe is a lost cause as well? That simply because those people are not attractive, everything that they've come to and concluded about life is not, shouldn't be attractive as well? doesn't make any sense. It's not logical. But the thing is, that's how we make our judgments. That's how we make our judgments. The second way that God, uh, you know, hides immeasurable value, spiritual value through ordinariness, the kingdom of God is hidden through an ordinary message, the gospel. The kingdom of God is hidden in the gospel. Why do they laugh at that person who sold everything they had, everything that he had, to buy that, that field, that, that, that unfertile patch of land. And in fact, even after he buys that field, they're laughing at him. Why is that? It's because no one believes that treasure that, that beautiful, that glorious, of that kind of worth is that accessible. No one, no one believes that. No one believes that. Um, that, that these, they believe that these kind of treasures are far away, that you have to work hard for it, that you have to be an expert in order to be able to identify something that's of immeasurable value or worth. You have to work hard for it. Nothing's that easy. Nothing's that accessible. That's what we believe. The gospel is this. Jesus Christ, God infinite, became finite and died for you. And through that, because of Christ's record and because of his work, God accepts you purely by grace, not by our works, but purely by our grace. And that is the secret to life, to live on the basis of that grace that is the end of fighting. That's the end of arguing. That is the end of competing with other people for love, competing uh, with other people uh, to get ahead, stepping over other people to get ahead. It's the end of all those things and to be beating ourselves up when we sin or when we feel guilty. Why? Because by grace, you're already embraced with the most cosmic embrace, the, mo- the only eternal, the only embrace that's ever eternal. That's the secret to life. That's what we believe. 
We don't believe that that kind of reality is that accessible. We believe we have to work for love. We believe that's why we work so hard for promotions, because that's a form of love. We believe we have to work for these things, to earn these things. That's the only way. We want steps to renewal. We want five steps to success. But if you're new to Christianity, think about this. You have to accept the simplicity of the message, the ordinariness of the message. It's hard. It's really hard, actually, to do that. For me, for many years, I've walked right by the gospel for decades. And when people ask me today, when, when did you come to know Christ? I say, well, I used to say, well, when I was nine, I heard a message, I believed it, it convicted me when I was nine. Now I say, well, it's probably sometime between the age of nine and 24. Because I thought I was a Christian since I was nine. But I was so captivated um, with finding a sense of worth through so many other things until I really came to understand and know the gospel. This was after I became president of a college group that was like four or 500 people large. This was after I had been running and serving uh, uh, children and youth for years and years and years. It was, I walked right by the gospel. I believe it saved me. But then I would say, you know, let's get on to the deeper stuff. Let's get on to the real stuff, the stuff that's going to make me grow. You know, I, I, I get that it's important. It's the basics, I used to say. The gospel is just the basics. You know, I want the stuff that's going to make me look bigger, that's going to make me mighty, that's going to make me sound doctrinally, because that's the stuff that we need to know. We've got to get into the meat. First Peter chapter 1, verse 12, it's written, it's printed in your call to worship. Paul, Peter writes, <clears throat> It was told to you, the last verse, the last part of that last verse, even the angels long to look into these things. He's talking about salvation. He's talking about the gospel. He's talking about the angels through the ages. I mean, if you know what angels are, angels, they live for years, years beyond us. They live for centuries. Uh, and they have wisdom, all wisdom. They have all intellect, tremendous power. And yet, their life longing. When they get together, you know what they talk about? You know what they think about? You know what they reflect on? Right now, how the gospel's working out in people from history on to the present and into the future. They're longing to figure it out. It is the one thing that they revolve their lives around. They're amazed by it. It catches them off guard. It, it, it stuns them. That's what Peter's writing. They're longing to meditate on the truths of the gospel. They never get tired about it. Every day they see new beauties in it. And if angels don't ever get beyond the truths, the realities of the gospel, we shouldn't get beyond the truths and the realities of the gospel. And yet it's very easy to bypass. For me, for decades, I've walked on by. I walked right over the treasure. I stepped right on the treasure and walked right on by. And I then see its worth and its beauty until much later. Angels, they see treasure. You know, when you hear, Jesus died for me so that God accepts me, I don't have to work for it, you know, do you realize that's the solution to every one of our problems internally and even externally? Do you know that? Um, Every one of our obstacles. If you don't get it, don't walk by it. Come to grips with it. Seek it. The treasure's right under you. You could be walking right over it right now. We are in a field of ordinariness, even in the church. Don't walk through and just pass on by. And lastly, Jesus buries this treasure in himself. Who is Jesus? 
He himself is a cloak of ordinariness. You know, some of you, uh, you know, you're checking out churches and, um, you know, well, you know, first of all, you come to truth about Jesus as Savior and it completely shatters what the world believes a Savior should look like, right? We, we, want, we want people that we can lift up. We want people that we can completely highlight, the highlight reel. That's what we're always looking for. Those are the people that we admire and worship. But who is Jesus? Jesus was born poor. Jesus was born poor in poverty, in loneliness. He was not attractive. Isaiah chapter 53 says that there was nothing about him that would have attracted anybody to him. That's Jesus. His disciples were losers. His pupils were losers. He was arrested. He was tried. He was executed as a criminal on the cross. That's how he was lifted up. There's nothing about him that would draw any one particular person to him, save by grace alone. And uh, so he's completely ordinary. He was less than ordinary. And yet, his greatness was hidden all within The key to salvation is hidden in his character and in the work that he did for us on the cross. Don't just bypass that. The world, you know, we can't get beyond the veil of his ordinariness. Some of us, we're checking out these churches. That's what I was saying before. And when you come to church, what do you look for? Think about what you look for in a church. You're looking at the externals. How how do these people treat me today? How is this community? How how is the warmth of this community? Um, We look, uh, when we come to the churches, we look at the things uh, that, that kind of spark our eye as to what should be good in a church. That's what we look for, what we bypass and what we need to get over. We need to get beyond the externals. You need to look at the content. You need to look at the message. You need to look at what the Bible calls us to, strictly and only Christ. Fix our eyes on Christ. We tend to bypass that. Why? Because of all people... You know, Christians, we have, we have, it's so important to see this as a treasure. We have a God that claims that he let go of his glory and he came down and became ordinary. He didn't just dwell with us. He didn't just kind of hang out with us as God, but he became us. That's what we believe, that he traded places with us. He, the, the infinite, became the finite so that the finite could become infinite. That's the message. That's the person. If that's true, that should free us of our obsession with images. That should free us of our obsession with our reputation. That should free us of of using our friendships with people just out of a need to be socially connected with them. His freedom should enable our freedom because Jesus was completely free of that. God became poor. God was so confident to hang out with the lowest in the social ladder. That's, that's his confidence. Where did that confidence come from? He wasn't just trying to be a model. He was incarnating us. He became us. Um, so that God would not just be, it was a way of showing us that God would not be honored by our looks, simply by our reputation, by our social connections, by our, our agenda you know, our, our, of, of growing wealth and income so that we could earn our way back up to God. That's not the way God works. It's a way of shattering that image. Think, it changes even who you look for in a spouse. Think about what you, think about your, you know, everyone's got a top three or top five list and what you look for in a spouse. Generally, if you're, if you're going with the trend, you're going to look at the person's educational uh, profile. You're going to look at their income profile, their salary profile. 
Every one of us, because to be loved by someone who is beautiful, that's how you feel beautiful. To love by somebody who is wealthy makes us feel worthy and wealthy. That's what we want. That's what we're pursuing. That's why many of us exclude a whole subsection of people in the church strictly by the basis of these externals. And you're just walking over. You're just bypassing people like that. That's what we're doing. God is not honored by that. You know, most of our gauges are worldly gauges. What the gospel does is once you discover it, it changes that. That's what it changes. What does it change? It frees you to get beyond yourself. You know, most of us, we think, okay, now I gave my life to Jesus, so uh, now he's going to answer my prayers because I've given my life to him. I've given my life up for him. I I tithe weekly, and and now he's going to answer my prayers. But if you think about it, what are most people's prayers? What are most of our prayers today? We're we're consumed by our looks. You know, we're consumed by um, the things that we're chasing. You know, God, make me successful. You know, help me on this exam tomorrow because I really need your help. We get most religious the night before an exam, if you think about it, right? Um, The night before a great presentation, you know, God, help me with this thing. We're, you know, that person that we're interested in, you know, Lord, I just want to pray for that person, you know, that you would shape his or her heart towards me. That's what we pray for. (laughs) That's what we pray for, right? Um, Because success, looks, a person's figure, um, if you're praying for that, you know, they're just a means. They're only a means to your experiencing joy. You know, you think that if you could just have that person or that thing, those things that we're chasing after, you think it's going to increase your joy. You think it's going to increase your potential. You think it's going to increase your options. When in fact, without God, it's going to decrease your potential, decrease your joy, decrease your options. In the book, The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis, um, if you know anything about that book, it's a kind of like a dream sequence. A person is be, being guided through heaven. Um, there's this one chapter where you have this parade of people, and all these people are dancing around this central figure. You know, they're, they're dancing around this person, and the person is beautiful, and they're coming around the corner, and the narrator says, you know, I could hardly look at her and the unbearable beauty. And he turns to his guide, and he says, by chance, is this, is this, and the person says, no, 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 not at all. Not at all, you know. Um, this person is Sarah Smith. When she was alive, she lived in a very ordinary part of England. And, um, and so, you know, then, the, then the, you know, the narrator says, well, then who are all those people dancing around her? And the guide says, oh, those are her sons and daughters. And the, guy, the, the narrator says, she must have had a lot of children. And the guide says, no, actually, she had no children on earth. These are the people that she had moved with her love, demonstrated on earth. And, and uh, you know, whoever she met became a child. And so Sarah Smith was not really considered noble. She was just this ordinary person, but her love changed others because of Christ's love for her. And the result, it's an amazing line in the book, few men looked at her wanting her but it made them want to be truer to their own wives. Beautiful woman, amazing woman. Who was this person? She was a nobody. She changed people's lives because of her joy, because of her love, because of the peace that she experienced in Christ. You know, if you think about why we complain, you know, why do we complain, you know, what good is it for me to be a Christian when, you know, 
it just ruins my life. Everything that I ever wanted, I give up. You know, I'm, I'm suffering in life and all these bad things are happening to me. What are you going after? What are you pursuing? It should be after quality. It should be after true beauty. It should be after peace. It should be after courage. That's what we should be chasing. You know, these things on the inside, these are the only glories that last in our lives. We have to get over the world's standards if you want to find real treasure. Otherwise, you're just going to bypass it. You're just going to walk over what's ordinary. Some of us are still looking for something that's going to make us fit into the world's standards. And we say, you know, I love the gospel, um, but um, we're actually really driven by fulfilling the world's standards. That's what we want to do. We want to get rich. We want to look beautiful. We want to have a sense of worth. If somebody just, would just love me. And the, those of us who are winning on that scale, you feel better about yourself. That's how you know you're still stuck on the world's standards. And those of us who are losing along that scale, you feel dejected. That's how you know you're still stuck on the world's standards. You know, both of those people, both of those types are losing themselves. Their joy, their potential, their options, their freedom all decreasing, when really, when you have the gospel, when you realize the beauty and the glory of the treasure that you can behold, that you've discovered, you know, fixing your eyes on Christ, then you find real beauty. Then you found true riches. Then you found worth. Then you found the embrace of the Father in a way that will never be taken away from you. And so that's the first point, the kingdom of God. It's always hidden from us. And so when we encounter it, when we discover it, it's always going to be a surprise. Second, this treasure, once you find it, it's going to change your life totally. It's going to change your life utterly. It's going to completely reshape your life. There are tremendous differences between these two people, when you see, in just these two parables, between these two people. In the first case, the treasure was found by accident. In the second case, with the pearl, it was a merchant, a pearl merchant, who uh, was deliberately looking for treasure. In the first case, you have a commoner, this common man who happens to be walking along a field and discovers this treasure, you know, this regular Joe. In the second case, you have a merchant. He's incredibly wealthy. And to be wealthy in those days, you had to be educated. You had to come from a good social background. In the first case, the owner of the field does not know anything of the value. He just thinks he's getting rid of this plot of land. But in the second case, clearly the seller of the pearl must have understood the value of the pearl, at least to this merchant, because he sees this merchant selling everything that he's got to give it up for him. So in the first case, the seller is ignorant. The second, place, the second case, the seller is absolutely aware. You have two different people that, 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 are, that Jesus is talking about who've come across their treasure. But there's one thing that's the same between the two of them. Once they get a hold of this treasure, they're willing to give up everything. They're willing to give up everything they had to get the field. They're willing to give up everything they have to find this pearl, to get this pearl. They put everything on the block. There's no halfway. There's no retention plan. There's no something that they're holding back to hide away under their mattress. Uh, You know, they give up everything. The difference between having something of worth And having something of immeasurable worth is what? What is it? One thing, you know, to find something of worth, you're willing to give up things for it, you know. Um, But the other thing, you're willing to give up everything. There's nothing on the shelf. It's at the cost of everything else. 
You know, on one hand, you know, you have this thing of immeasurable value. You're willing to give up everything you've got for it. But to have something of just worth, it's on the shelf, shelf along with everything else. It's just part of the checklist. It's just maybe a means to get these other things of value or of worth. Basically, what I'm saying is, on one hand, one thing is just a help to get you there. The other thing is the object, the subject. You've finally arrived when you've discovered this thing. It makes you, it makes you whole, it completes you. Every part of your life is revolutionized. You know, spiritual treasure, it never just supplements your life. If you've really found spiritual treasure, it never just supplements you. It never just helps you. It never just improves you. It's going to remake you. It's going to reshape all of your views. It's going to make you question everything that you at one point thought was solid and real. It's going to make you question it again. It's going to make you question everything you banked your life on again. <clears throat> there are three things that happen, again, to make it practical. There are three things that happens to these men who find, who find the treasure, who find the pearl. In the first case, their attitude completely changed. Their heart changes. You know, the pearl merchant, he's a man of wealth. He's willing to liquidate his entire wealth for the sake of this wealth. Here's this man, this commoner who's poor. You know, he comes across this treasure in the field. He's willing to liquidate everything that he's got to basically get this field. In other words, this man, by giving up his life savings, has no more life savings. He's given up his annuities. He's given up his IRAs. He's given up his 401k. He's cashed everything in. Every, that little that he's got, that little that he's saved up, he's cashed it all in, which means that he has become even poorer. His life rides, rises and falls with the value of what's in that field. If it's not that valuable, then he, his life goes to the pits. But what he's found is of immeasurable worth. It's worth all those things and more. He knows he's getting a bargain. He knows it's a steal. He knows that. It changed his attitude toward everything else in life. He knows he's going to be mocked. He may be looked upon. You know, people are like, everyone else around him is going to be confused. But he knows. He sees. He sees the value of what's inside. The reason that he was able to transfer his material wealth, liquidate everything, you know, pulling all the money from the mattress and cashing it in is because he's already transferred his emotional wealth. He's already transferred his emotional wealth. You can transfer your, your, your material wealth if you've transferred your emotional wealth. Everyone, scriptures teaches, has got their wealth in something. You know, in the past years, it's been really scary to put any money in any form of property. You know, and a few years prior to that, it was definitely risky to put money in stocks. In the same way, our hearts place emotional, purchase emotional stock in the same way. That's what we do. We take our heart and we place it in particular areas. We're placing, we're buying stock in those things. How do you know where your treasure is before you come across the treasure of immeasurable value? Do you know how you know? Where does your mind go when you're completely alone and nothing else is preoccupying it at the moment. Well, your mind is just completely free. It can just go wherever it wants to go. What do you fantasize about? What do you dream about? What do you imagine? Another way of asking that is, what do you worry about? What consumes you in your worry? What is your biggest nightmare in life? It could be a good thing. It could be a noble thing. It could be a duty thing. You know, but where does it go? Because that thing... You know, if you lose it, you feel like you're just, you, would, you could just die if you just lose it. Your children, 
your spouse, that one person that you love? You know, could it be, uh, you know, your wealth, all the, all the wealth that you've amassed, your pedigree? What is that one thing, if you just lose it, it's just the end of your life? These tests, and they all reveal the same thing. They reveal where your emotional wealth is placed. That if you just hold on to these things, and yet you still come to church, you know, and you haven't transferred your emotional wealth, then your heart is treasuring things of the world. And you're really coming to God. Really right now, if you're coming to God with that, you're coming to God to use him to get you there, to get those things. You just want to improve. You're still living a fear-based life. That's why you worry. That's why you're so consumed by your doubts and your worries. You know, I, I personally, I'm very wary of people like that. You know, as a, as a pastor, my job is to assess, constantly assess people. And I'm very wary of that. You know why? Because they come with agendas. They come with agendas. And you know how you know that? Problems in the church reveal those agendas. You know, they come without gratitude. If you haven't given God everything, you know, I did right, so I have a right to say these things. I have a right to claim these things. I'm entitled to ask for these things that I want. Then you haven't transferred your emotional wealth. If you can't come to God with gratitude, if you don't have a thankful heart for what you found, you don't think that man that found that, emo- that treasure, you know, number one, he's going to run before somebody else does. He's going to run, cash in everything he's got, whatever he's got, whatever little he has, he's going to give it all because he knows what he has is worth far more. It's going to determine and define who he is in many ways. You know, but uh, you, you, you do, how do you think he lives going forward? Generations from then, he's going to look to it, look at his grandkids, and he's got tremendous wealth. And he's going to say, you know, I will always look back to that day that I was just walking down the field and I tripped over what I thought was a rock and instead it was a diamond. That's what he's going to say. I owe my life to that. That's what he's going to say. We just, you know, we have things that make us feel so unhappy and it shows and it shows because you know you've lost your sense of holistic purpose and calling and mission those are the things that are hard treasures that's how you know you know that you haven't given God everything that's how you know Um, you haven't transferred your emotional wealth and eventually what happens is you lose your joy and you you start to ask why am I here and I'm so dissatisfied so the first thing that happens when you found this treasure is your attitude changes you become, you have, you're filled with gratitude. Your whole heart changes. The second thing that happens is, <clears throat> and you look at the response of these men here in this text, um, it, it changes the way you assess what is valuable. Your paradigm of what is valuable, your worth starts to change. Look at, look at what these people have. They're willing to give up everything. The pearl merchant, this common man who's walking along the field, um, they're willing to give up everything. And what, why is that? It's because they see value. They now have a new picture of beauty. You know, before I thought it was just this. If I just have this, and he realized, my gosh, I've been settling for just this little hotel space all my life when now I realize that what was intended for me is this mansion. Those aren't my words. That's C.S. Lewis. He says we so much settle for just hotel space in our lives when what God is offering is mansions of glory. That's what he's saying. That's what happens you know, and, uh, you know, uh, we, we look at the value. We look at the beauty of the treasure. We look at the cost of the treasure. We look at what's been shed for us, what Christ has done for us, and we enjoy that. You know, you can make the material transfer, 
when you do the emotional transfer. Come on, think about it. No one sits there. You know, not a single person in this room, you know, has a bed full of money and we're just swimming in it. And we're just like, yeah. we're, we're, no one does that here. You know, like, like DuckTales, you know, Scrooge McDuck. Nobody does that. You know, we look, at the, we look at the cost. You know, that's ridiculous, right? It's silly. We look at the cost. We look, you know, whenever we look, it shows that you're clinging to your wealth when you look at something. And some of us say, yeah, I could buy that if I really wanted to. And some of us say, I can't buy that. You know, I deserve it, but I can't buy that. You know. You're clinging to the world standards. Because why do you need it? Why do you want it so badly? That's what it is. You know, and you know it's so hard to give up. Your eyes have a way of assessing value everywhere you go. Every one of us is looking at each other. And we're assessing value and worth. Do you believe that? Do you know that? You do that. We look at who we can go to for connections. Who we can go to to network. If I can just be loved by this person because she is pretty, and if I can just be known by her, then I feel good about myself. And another way of doing that is by putting down people that we believe are less attractive than us, because if I just do that, then I feel better about myself. That's the way we roll. That's the way we live. Um, another way, so uh, you know, a Christian, however, sees value, has made the emotional transfer from things of the world to this great treasure that they've discovered. You know, they don't recognize, they don't look at the loss. They don't feel like it's a sense of loss at all. Jim Elliott, a Harvard grad who became a missionary and later on was martyred before he ever was able to establish himself as a missionary within, I believe, the first month of his mission with five other men that he had traveled there to to that tribe in Africa. He was martyred, you know, in his journal says what? Famous phrase. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Amazing phrase, amazing quote. A Christian is someone who has not placed his emotional wealth in material things. Things are not going to last. Because of that, he's free. And he sees and he assesses the value of the treasure that he's encountered, the immeasurable worth that that has. And he asks, you know, instead of saying, you know, I deserve this, that's a life that's not lived in gratitude. I'm entitled to this, no matter what it is. That's not a life lived in gratitude. You know what gratitude is? To this day, I look back and I ask, why me? I mean, there were six of us walking along that field that day. Why me? What is it about me? Why do I get to experience this? Why do I get to have this? You know, a person who feels entitled, who does not live life in gratitude, is constantly asking God. When he goes to God, you know, you know what he asks? What can I do to make myself better? That's what he asks. What can I do to improve? What can you do for me to help me to get there? What can you do for me to make it worthwhile for me to stay here? That's what, a, that's what somebody who doesn't live life in gratitude, that's how they ask. That's what they ask. The answer is not, you know, try harder. You know, you just have to look and see the treasure and assess its value. And it's going to shape you. It's going to change your heart. Let your heart, let your eyes process the immeasurable worth of Christ the immeasurable worth of Christ and who he is, his ultimate value in our lives. What are you processing? You're processing Jesus himself. Jesus says, you know, you can have real glory through me. Jesus, he is the true beauty. He is the obedient one. Philippians chapter 2 says, Jesus came down 
And he actually came down and he became us. He emptied himself of everything that he was to be obedient to God in his humility. Isaiah 53, again, there was nothing about him that was attractive as a result by man. This immeasurable beauty that is Christ, the immeasurable glory that is Jesus, who had infinite treasure, infinite wealth, the inheritance of the kingdom himself, and yet he relinquished all those things. He came down, he emptied himself of all those things. In other words, he made the material transfer. He made the material transfer. He gave up everything. He came to earth, this plot of land that was just completely broken and dismantled and, and, and just, uh, you know, like, this, like I said, this hurling ball of rock that's going to one day come to an end. And on Gethsemane, you see the ultimate picture, you know, the penultimate picture of his transfer, the emotional transfer. Here he is, he's grieving in Gethsemane. He says, my soul is grieved to the point of death. He says, I'm losing myself. My body, my heart, my mind, my soul, it's falling apart. You know why? Because I'm looking at what's going to happen to me soon. That one day God will actually turn his face away from me. He will forsake me. And he's broken by that. He's experiencing the death before he actually dies. He says, my soul is grieved to the point of death. And yet he says, take my cup. Take this cup away from me. Not my will, but yours be done. Look at the obedience of Christ. Look at the surrender of Christ. Look at the humility of Christ. Look at the love of Christ. What did he do that for? Look at the love of Christ. Look at the grace of Christ. And he says, he's making what you're seeing there in Gethsemane. And it's just a picture of his entire life. He is making the emotional transfer again and again and again. And it's getting more and more intense. And yet he says, you know what, Lord? It's, it's your will. I just want to do your will. You are my center. You are my center. I just want to do your will. You are my center. And all the way to the cross. And what happens on the cross? God, his center. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Christ's center, Christ's picture of immeasurable value and worth was his own father, and yet on the cross, he says, I've lost my father. I've lost my wealth. This wealth has become hidden from me. This wealth has been taken away from me. I've become spiritually poor. I've become cosmically bankrupt. I've become cosmically forsaken. It's not just the people who are hurling insults at me, who have crucified me on this cross. My God, my God has forsaken me. I've lost infinite value. I've lost my worth. You know why he did that? Jesus lost the treasure so that you could have the treasure. Jesus lost cosmic worth so that you could have cosmic worth. Jesus lost cosmic acceptance so that you could have, you could gain the cosmic acceptance. You could just receive it. It's just given to you. You know, God had forsaken him so that he could love you, he could embrace you, he could forsake you. We say, our Father, who art in heaven? Our Father. You know why? Because Jesus said, my God. It was the only only time in the Gospels, written in the Gospels, where God doesn't refer to, where Jesus doesn't refer to God as his Father. He says, my God, my God. Why? So you can call him Father. That's the good news. That's the good news. And you know, it's not just Jesus. God himself, Can you imagine ever forsaking your children? Knowing that they're in the pinnacle of their suffering. You know, every one of us, no matter how resilient we are, we know, you know, know, our children sometimes head in bad paths. But you know, no matter where they go, you will always want to be there to rescue them. Sometimes you have to restrain yourself from rescuing them because you know they need to learn, sometimes through pain. But the thing is, it kills you to do that, right? Imagine God seeing his son on the cross and having to crush him. Jesus had to have been willing to do that 
to forsake his treasure, who is God. God who once said, my son, you are my son, whom I treasure, whom I love, and yet he had to forsake him. Why? You would only be willing to do that if there was another treasure. What was Jesus' treasure that made it worthwhile to be forsaken by his own? What was God's treasure that made it worthwhile to be forsaken by his own, to, to forsake his own? It's you. It's us. We are the treasure. We are the pearl of God's great price. And the more you take that gospel and put it in, there's your worth. There's your beauty. There's immeasurable value that God has placed in you. I mean, if he's willing to suck, you would, you, we doubt many times whether or not God loves us. But you would never doubt whether or not God loves his own son. You know God loves his son, and yet he's willing to sacrifice his son for you. You have immeasurable value and worth in Christ. Do you believe that? The closer, the more you plant that into your life, into other areas of your life, there's your freedom. You can loosen your grip on all those things. And the more you see that you are God's pearl, Jesus becomes your pearl of great price. That's how you discover the treasure. That what was once ordinary becomes of immeasurable worth to you. Will you understand what he did for you? You will never realize what he did for you until you realize who he is, his person, his character, his beauty, his glory. And then what he did for you, there is your worth. That becomes the medicine that makes all things expendable in life. That's the only medicine that will allow you to say, Lord, do what you will. That's the only medicine that will allow you to say, come what may, I can endure. I will endure. That's the only medicine that will make you willing to say, you know, I want to obey no matter what. No matter what he tells me about me in any area of my life, sometimes I don't like to hear it, but no matter what he tells me about any area of my life, and accept at the same time where he sends me anywhere I need to go. That's the only thing. That's the gospel, the good news. If you don't do that, you're going to live life grumpy. You're always going to be grumpy, always going to act entitled. You know, I'm young, I tried hard, I still don't see what's in it for me. You know, your life will never be shaped. All of our lives will be shaped by our pursuit, by our treasure. You will either be uh, shaped by one that will not last or you will be shaped by the treasure that will endure in your life and make you treasurable. Do you believe that? Let's pray.